Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. center it sounds very huge and elevated and that's what it feels like like once you're working there because rent is about much more than just friendship love and musical theater it was about something that shook musical theater people are Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 218 for September 18th, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we are wrapping up our four-part nymph coverage this week. Including this week's show, we will have covered an amazing 26 shows from the New York Musical Theatre Festival, which continues through October 5th, so you have a lot of time to go out and catch these shows. So definitely urge you to do that. And we got a lot of great stuff on this episode. We've got Cyclone and the Pig-Faced Lady. We've got Love, Jerry, which features an interview with Donna Lynn Champlin this episode. Play It Cool, Lines, Bedbugs, I Come for Love, and Via Diodati. Now, for tickets to all the shows, you can visit the Nymph website at nymf.org. Uh, you can also find links to all the shows we've been covering the festival on our show notes page for each episode at broadwaybullet.com. And considering I'm under a bit of a time crunch today and that we do actually have seven shows being interviewed this episode, um, I'm not going to be able to get the call board and uh, the top of the trade segments up in this episode, though you can find that news on our show notes page on broadwaybullet.com. And uh, Marty Cooper and Ken Davenport, I believe, will be back next week as well. So this one's all nymph all the time. And let's jump on into it. On the boards. The world of comic books and Coney Island in the 20s comes alive in Cyclone and the Pig-Faced Lady, which is being uh, presented by the New Perspectives Theatre Company at the New York Musical Theatre Festival. And we have got playwright and lyricist Dana Leslie Goldstein and uh, the lead actress, Jodie Bentley, and we're also joined by a gigantic mane of hair. <laughs> <laughs> Jodie has hair. hair. follows me everywhere. <laughs> it sort of helps, I guess, with the superhero thing. It's true. Do you want to introduce yourselves quickly so that people connect the voice with your name? Sure. I'm Dana Leslie Goldstein, I'm playwright lyricist. And I'm Jodie Bentley. I play Cyclone in Cyclone and the Pig-Faced Lady. All right, well, to start things off, uh, why don't you tell us just a little bit about Cyclone? Sure. Um, it's about a woman comic book writer, um, an artist, who's so in love with the comic book world that she's creating that she lets it seduce her away from her real life. Um, and like Michael said, uh, the comic book world is the glamorous, sexy, seedy Coney Island of the Roaring Twenties. Um, so it's it's not hard to see why you would get seduced away from your real life toward that Um but then events happen in the real world that make her question the value of superheroes um, and even of art. And ultimately, she has to use her art to become the hero of her own story. And Jodie plays the, the superhero in the comic book. She's gorgeous and sexy, just like the superhero. 
I, I try. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to try hard. But Jody, I understand that you've been working with this project for a while now. Yeah, I've been with it not quite since the beginning, but over almost, a, almost since the beginning. So just going on almost two years now. I think, I think it's even more um, since since the we did a concert reading at the York, and um, yeah, it's maybe three it's been years. a while. <laughs> it's been a while, definitely. She's awesome. But it's been great to grow with the project, and it's been really amazing actually to get it on its feet and find her body in the life of it other than sitting in a chair reading. So it's been a lot yeah. of fun to take it and really explore in a full production. It's been great. Yeah, we finally get to dance. I mean, I don't, thank God. <laughs> no, but Jody does. <laughs> and the rest of the cast, and they're great. And uh, our choreographer is Edie Cowan, who choreographed uh, the original Little Shop of Horrors. So that's really amazing. Um, she's wonderful. Yeah, she's great to work And I understand you're also working with an actual comic book artist that excites you. <laughs> yes. Um, that's, it's so exciting. Um, Adriana Mello, who draws uh, Witchblade and Ms. Marvel, in, including the brand new Ms. Marvel number 30 that just, I think it's coming out today. Um, she draws that, and she draws uh, Birds of Prey and Rose and Thorn and Star Wars Empire and Imperium. I could go on and on <laughs> um, from Marvel and DC and Top Cat. I mean, she's, she's amazing. And she's drawing all the comic book panels that are being projected throughout the show um, because the show itself goes back and forth between the real world and the comic book world. Mm -hmm. And we see what Sally, the comic book artist, is drawing on the stage. And all those drawings are being done by Adriana Mello. Um, so I'm very excited about that. Yeah, it's pretty thrilling to have her draw my superhero. <laughs> right. So we'll see what that looks like. Right. Very excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's well, cool. Well, before we continue, maybe let's listen to one of the songs sure. from the show. Uh, right. Do you want to set up this first one we're going to play? Sure. Um, the first one is the Cyclone theme song. Um, it's a group number, and the you know the good and not so good people with Coney Island are um, kind of rapturously talking about uh, about Cyclone, the superheroine that Jody plays. Um, and the song is kind of also a montage of rescues and adventures over the course of two years of comic books that come out. Um, so it, you know, it's kind of the song that if there were a superhero show about Cyclone, you know, a TV show, um, it would be like, you know, na 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 Batman or, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. It's like that kind of song. It would be the, it is the theme <laughs> it song. Is the theme Cyclone theme song. So, you know. All right. Let's take a listen. Cyclone. 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 You're a tempest in my teacup. You make my little heart go tilt a whirl. A hurly burly, still you're the girl we love. We're always dreaming of. In the eye of your storm, Cyclone, are you all alone tonight? Come on and save me. Save me. Got me rolling, got me coasting, with twists and turns that take my breath away. Cyclone, 
Okay, so it's the comic book world, and uh, Jody and Dana, I'm wondering, are you comic book tourists, or are you into comic books? <laughs> <laughs> Different answer. Yeah, very, uh, I'm a tourist. <laughs> Got my bags, but... Exactly. Um, yeah, it's been a whole new thing for me, having to do some research, uh, you know, even looking at the drawings and getting a feel for some of those worlds, and even researching into Coney Island, though, to get that. What would the superhero be in Coney Island, and discover Yes, my superhero character, but her, uh, you know, everyday persona, which happens to be a vaudeville belly dancing chanteuse. Of course. <laughs> she sings in belly so, dancing. As, as her secret identity. <laughs> right. Um, so, that yeah. doesn't draw attention at all. <laughs> no. Oh, no. I thought a secret identity was supposed to, like, push attention away. No, she loves the attention. <laughs> Coney Island. Character. What are you going to do, right? Right. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely a tourist in the world, but I've learned a lot about comic books and definitely have a great respect for them. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'm a freak. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I, as a kid, I was probably the only girl who read comic books, and it, it let me meet a lot of boys, but that wasn't why I read them. Um, <laughs> but, but, uh, um, I, I once... In a, in a moment of, of destitution, I went to try and sell my comic books, and I brought them to a comic book store, and I had like 500 of them, and they offered oh me, gosh. oh, it was it was a sad moment, um, but they offered me like $20 for my entire collection, <laughs> because they were so dog-eared, you know, they, I didn't buy them to collect them, I bought no. them to read them, and I read them over and over, and they're in the worst condition ever, but I, you know, I was obsessed. Um, but uh, but now I have a daughter who's reading Spider Girl, and that's really cool. So now girls read comic <laughs> books, which is great. Well, you know, you have a term for that kind of thing now. You know, the you know hot geek girl. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'd say that's accurate for you, Dan. <laughs> I like that. You know, I mean, it's easy. It's got to be good for meeting guys, too. Right? Yeah, well, <laughs> now I can be a MILF. It's terrible. It's terrible. Jody gets to be the persona I want to be up on the <laughs> Well, good. <laughs> So, Jody, I'm kind of curious. With <clears throat> have you been w involved with any other musicals through long production process, or yeah, know? actually, um, uh, when the New York Musical Theater Festival first came out um, that first year, I did a reading of Captain Louie, and then we went off Broadway with that show, and that was a pretty long process with that as well. And uh, another, Stephen Schwartz, yeah, Stephen Schwartz's Captain Louie that we did, and did the cast recording for that. Um, and also did a show last year, which was a partner event with Nymph, called Girl Gang, and I've been workshopping that for almost two years. So I seem to find myself in all these uh, wonderful contemporary new projects, and that's really what drives me and what I love to do. So it's just thrilling to take it to the next level as well and see where it goes beyond. And Jody's a great singer, but she's also a really great actress. I have a straight Thank play you. that she just, she just played a part in that I, I, I watched you do that role and felt like... It was. I wrote it for you, even though you'd never seen it before. So thank you. You know, she's she's great a great writer, so well, it makes it easy. It's mutual admiration society. <laughs> but anyway. And now this originally got kind of going with a Grant from the Women's Project, right? Yes. Um, is that is that have any influence on why there is such a dominant female team on this? I guess it's. I mean, it's where it began. The it, in in 2002, 2003, the Women's Project decided that they had some extra money and they wanted to take a woman playwright and a woman director 
and have them create. Why a do you have to say that? <laughs> is, I, I have to ask. I'm curious. I've been waiting since, since the pre-interview. I've been waiting for you to use that term, <laughs> woman playwright, woman director. <laughs> like, like they're not really playwrights. They're really directors. No, no. It's only because there's, <laughs> there's so few. They're of not us. a playwright and director. They're a woman playwright. <laughs> they're a What's woman it? director. The only world where there are fewer women than in theater is in comic books. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, but uh, but but it, and the women's project is devoted. To women playwrights, so I mean that was yeah. kind of the playwrights yeah. who are female. Playwrights who are female. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think Sorry. it's a noun thing. It's like you know, Sorry. it's an adjective that somehow implies that it's different than being a regular. No, that's true, and I don't think it is. I definitely don't think it's different. Um, but it 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 informed the fact that we were working with the women's project. Um, it informed the kind of story we were trying to tell. Um, so you know, it, we definitely were working toward it being a woman's story. And it's, mm -hmm. it is very much about a woman who makes a choice between having a, you know, a full personal life and having, um, having this artistic career. And she feels like she has to make a choice, that she can't have both. And I think that is a, women, a woman's choice. A female choice? <laughs> I don't know. A choice. A woman's choice. You see, that's a perfectly acceptable adjective. <laughs> you know, like I said. But I should mention um, that the director's name is Elisa Martin, and she has been, she conceived with this with me from the very beginning, so I, you know. Actually, I just said adjective, and it's noun. I mean, it's, it's too early. Oh, no, right. We forgive you. <sighs> Gotta get Lynn Ahrens back in here to sing right. the, uh, well, the Schoolhouse Rock stuff. <laughs> She's an idol, too. I bow down to Lynn Ahrens. You know. Lynn Ahrens and Tina Fey. <laughs> She's great. Um, I did want to say that, you know, about the whole women-centric project, though, it's been really great for me. Um, played Sally um, in the show, who's the comic book writer, is played by Ariella Morgenstern, who is wonderful. And sort of the two of us are sort of the leads in the show, so it's so great to have a show with two female leads. And, you know, there's a few of them out there, like Wicked Inside Show and that kind of stuff. But, again, it's just great to have, be yeah. in that sort of environment, and you don't get all the time. It's true. It's about the... And our composer's female, too. Yeah. Female, not a woman. She's female. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfectly acceptable to say our composer is a woman. Our composer. To, but not a woman composer. To say, we have a woman composer. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. She's a the woman amazing actor. Right, a woman, right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> Calling us out on everything, Michael. <laughs> I have to go back to feminist school. <laughs> and, um... I, so I gotta ask: Is the pig face lady just in the title, or is ah, that? Um, the pig face lady <laughs> is actually the writer. Um, the writer. The How did actress... you go about casting that? Let's, <laughs> let me be sensitive here. Um, we're looking for. <laughs> Poor <laughs> Ariella. No, no, we're not saying she's that. Not, she's, not at all, she's not at all big faced. She's lovely. Oh, but, uh, she, That's what her mama said. Oh, <laughs> I don't no, know. No, 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 no. Sorry. That's awful. No, she, and she, and actually, I should say about her that she just made it down to the to the top ten in in uh, Broadway Sensation. That's uh, Broadway it's like Idol. Broadway Idol. It's like American Idol for you know for Broadway stuff. So. Um, she's amazing. Yeah, but, uh, she's great. Um, but uh, it, the, the, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known this question was coming. Um, <laughs> Sally, the comic book writer, plays the pig-faced lady in her own comic book. There so it's go. sort of Cyclone and the pig-faced lady are her both of the uh, two sides of herself that she's writing and putting on paper. So she sort of becomes that character in the comic book. Um, and, so, yeah. 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 
And they are two sides. A cyclone is gorgeous and sexy and, and you know, strong and saves the day. And, and big hair. And big hair. And big hair. Always. <laughs> Always. <laughs> and, uh, and so how, often, how often every day do you get comments on your hair? Because that really is an uh, amazing, incredible hair. Thank you. Um, yeah, I do get comments, <laughs> slash compliments, slash looks, jeers, I don't know, something. There's um, a stage direction at the end of the play that we're not going to be able to do for this production, but it says, uh, it's something about Sally becoming the superhero and she emerges from a burning building with Roma's hair. You know, with, like, <laughs> not with her hair, but in her hair, but like with hair like Roma's, Blowing wild and big and, you know, and it's Jody hair. So. <laughs> no, but anyway. I guess it helps me get cast in things, so yeah, that's good. Oh, if it were just your hair. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's take a listen. We got another song here sure. from the show. Do you um, want to set this one up? Um, yeah, this is um, this is my favorite song from the show. Um, it's called <clears throat> Haunted, um, and it's uh, it's the torch song of the show, uh, and it's about love and loss, like whatever, like all torch songs are. Um, but it's specifically about um, the character of Andy, who is the guy that Sally, the comic book writer, uh, left behind to pursue her art. Um, and initially, Cyclone sings the song because. As happens so much during the show, Cyclone sings what Sally's feeling. Mm -hmm. um, but at this point in the show, Sally joins in and sings with her halfway through the song, and it becomes a duet, and it's like the two of them are kind of melding. Um, and Sally's actually letting herself feel the things that she's had Cyclone feeling for her. All right, let's take a listen. Used to be I didn't think of you at all. You and me, too long ago to recall. But after the fall, I'm haunted, haunted. I've always known, even from the very start, alone is the way to shield your heart so how is this the part that leaves me haunted haunted hadn't thought of you in years now each mistake is an stop hand in hand at every drop along the cyclone and you asked could I spend my life that way did we ever have that day I don't remember used to be It means to be haunted. 
All right, so I'm wrapping up my conversation with hot geek girl and lion hair lady talking oh about God. Cyclone and the big face lady. Accurate descriptions, I think. Right? <laughs> Rob's not going to leave that down. No, he'll love it. It'll be his favorite thing about the end. <laughs> and, okay, so I know Cyclone plays from the September 23rd. September 23rd? What's that? <laughs> uh, September 23rd through October 4th. Uh, what theater is this at? At TBG. Um, it's 312 West 36th Street, um, the third floor. It's okay. between 8th Avenue and 9th Avenue. And do you have a website of your own besides the Nymph yes, site? Yes, it's mm-hmm. at cyclonethemusical.com. Easy enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, just one last parting shot. Tiny Town mentioned in this? <laughs> Eventually, when we have lots of money and it's on Broadway. Then we get the midgets. Then we'll have the I was like, wait, what? Very short thing. They actually had a town where midgets were hired to live in. Yeah. We watched a whole um, documentary on. Right, uh, in the dramaturgy. Yeah. yeah. Coney Island was huge. I had no idea. And uh, and I I do want to say just one quick thing about the fact that that Astroland just closed on Sunday. And that's, it's very sad, but all those amazing, you know, Parks like Dreamland and Luna Park, and you know, got a reprise. I never was able to get on the what is it? Is it the Cyclone, the roller yeah, coaster? Yeah, yep. that's yeah. It. Bev- and before yeah. it, you know, closed, I thought it had closed, and we went down there, and I was like, oh, it's still open. Okay, I gotta go on. And I tell you, I felt like that thing was gonna go flying it's, off the rails. The yes. Yeah, I still haven't been on it oh, actually exactly. myself. I was forced to go on it because my my husband said, you know, if you're gonna write about it, you have to you have to get on it. Have to so, do it. And then I put that in the play. Did you take your glasses <laughs> off? <laughs> Probably you had the did. same. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, no. I like left my glasses on. And I'm like, oh my god, my glasses are gonna go sick. <laughs> but it's too late. But in the show, actually, the cyclone roller coaster is named after cyclone. So, yes. All right. Well, Dana Leslie Goldstein and Jody Bentley, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. And I wish you the best of luck in your run. Thanks thank so much. You. On the boards. Love, Jerry is a new musical or a play with music, but it's much closer to a musical. I'm I'm getting mixed (laughs) descriptions on this, and we're laughing, but it's very serious subject matters that deals with the subject of uh, uh, pedophilia uh, in family. And we have got two fantastic actors here with us, Donalyn Champlin, who... I'm sure many of you have heard about (laughs) a couple things. And JT Arbogast, which I don't ever have time to do prep work on Nimshuf. And I, I, after giving that intro to Donna, you don't I, need to do, give me do, any do better I, do intro. I, do I know you? No, you Should probably I don't. You? <laughs> Actually, I vouch for JT. Thanks. As a brilliant talent. I'm brilliant by proxy in the room right and now. And those of us who do know him worship him. Thank you. <laughs> I, I've seen Donna myself a few times, and I was excited. <laughs> see in the studio. But first things first, uh, kind of the basic setup, what is a after? Oh, ha 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 laugh. Tell us about Love, Jerry. Um, Love, Jerry is a play with music, as we've been sort of categorizing it. A music play, I think, is what the final sort of hyphenated word that we were able to come up with about two brothers, uh, Mike and Jerry, who shared a very tumultuous but close childhood 
And um, when we meet them at the beginning of the play, Mike has grown up. He's moved off. He's gotten married and has a child and recently lost his job. And Jerry, who still lives at home in the house that was left to them by their parents, ringing. Where'd that come from? <laughs> we'll never tell. Uh, don't worry about it. Uh, Mike, uh, Mike has lost his job. And Jerry, who still lives in the homestead where uh, his uh, parents have left the home to them after they have passed away, opens the home for Mike to bring his family back and kind of get back on his feet. Uh, shortly thereafter, um, Mike uh, brings his family back and, and Kate and them are sort of in this uh, uncomfortable but sort of it's home for them, but not home for them. And it's not long before it's discovered that Jerry is uh, sexually abusing his nephew, Andy, who is eight years old. And the family is thrown into a really messy place where the lines between love and hate are blurred and uh, the ideas of betrayal and forgiveness and the reconciliation of this person that you knew and this person who now is. Well, I think uh, that's a good point to make is that, I mean, the the show, yes, centers around this idea of incest and child abuse and everything, but I think really most of the show is more about family relations and how do you deal with forgiving and when do you forgive and how do you forgive and, and if a person does something truly heinous, does that make them 100% a villain? And it's it's very gray, which I think is extremely respectful of the audience and the story. Because I think, you know, but I, I, I think a lot of it yeah. is, is about more the, the family dynamic and the family relations and what happens when you basically toss a grenade into it. Mm-hmm. So what attracted you two to the, the project? Uh, <laughs> how, how long have you been with the project? Is it, are you both, is this your first time with it, or have you been... I no, I actually have been with the... Pro- I met Megan in graduate school at uh, the University of Texas in 2001, and uh, it was Megan, shortly, who's our who's book writer. Book and writer, music writer, writer, lyricist. She wrote the whole thing. Uh, and I met her in the fall of 2001, and she asked me to be a part of a reading of the play. And um, I was immediately taken with the material and the honesty with which she had created these characters and these relationships and uh, was a part of the development of it over the course of three years uh, at Texas. And then we did a full production in our third year. And uh, Actors Express in Atlanta picked it up and did a run of it in January of 2005, I think. And uh, we were all there for that, not as uh, participants as actors, but as audience members and support. But I've been with the play for a very long time, and I was really thrilled that Megan and I had sort of agreed this year to submit it to NIMF and see what sort of magic we could create here in New York. And uh, I was, you know, thrilled that we were we were accepted, and, and here I am. And I'll turn it over to you. <laughs> and, so how did I get involved yeah. with these? Um, <clears throat> Well, I've uh, I'm a big huge fan of the Nymph Festival. I've been um, I've participated I think almost every year, and uh, so um, my agent was uh, sort of getting scripts and stuff from other stuff that had come, and and I had just come off doing um, a bunch of really light, funny like Mame and Hot and Cold, and you know like, mm-hmm. and I was sort of really in the mood to do something more serious and dramatic, and so I just said you know just do me a favor and send me the scripts that are that are more the, along that vein and. And uh, he sent me this script, <laughs> and uh, I read the first five pages of it, and I called him and I said, I'm in. And uh, he was like, no, 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 read the whole thing, read the whole thing. <laughs> Please, Donalyn, read the whole thing. And I did, and, and by the end, I mean, I'm not going to give anything away, but the ending literally took my breath away. Like, I, I 
burst into tears. I was just reading it. I burst into tears, and I it took my breath away, and I, I called my agent, and I was like, no, seriously. <laughs> I don't know, you know, who I have to buy a big gift basket for, but I really... <laughs> And, you know, on a personal note, this, I mean, the issue of child abuse, I mean, it's its certainly one of a huge taboo subject and nobody talks about it, but it is, what's the, what's the figure? It's like one it's in every one in, there's, four Yeah, girls one in four one girls and one boys. in six boys before the age of 18 is somehow affected and, by child and, abuse. And that is my situation. This, this, my family has been affected by child abuse. And, and so personally, I, I even felt... I mean, the irony is that I think, you know, you say, I'm doing a musical about child abuse, and people automatically go, what? You know, and um, me having sort of lived through an experience under this umbrella of child abuse, my reaction was, that's the truth. That's what I know, and I felt a responsibility. Well, you know, it seems a lot of the problem, you know, whenever, you know, you know, you know, I see films or, you know, shows try to deal with it, it seems like they can't win. Either, you know, the, the abuser is kind of treated as in very, like, broad strokes as evil and, you know, and it comes out very, um, you know, just over overwrought. Or they try to make the person kind of a real human, then it's kind of like, how dare you give this, you know? <laughs> well, that actually, uh, I mean, that's part of the... The beauty of the play is the reality of the statistics is that 80% of these cases are committed by somebody the child knows, somebody the child trusts, somebody who is close with the family. But as a society, we kind of don't want to see it that way. In media, you see them more likely portrayed as boogeymen who are in you know white vans driving around a playground looking for kids to prey upon. Which is really kind of insulting to kids. Because Absolutely. Kids are stupid. <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like kids are, you know, I mean, they're, they're not going to really most likely get in a van with some creepy guy right. with a big mustache right. twirling it with one hand, you know? And that, I mean, I think that's the thing that I, I think is respectful. I mean, I really think that besides the fact that it's one of the bravest scripts I've ever seen in my life, I mean, it's so brave, but I think it also, you know, respects the audience's ability to be able to recognize a, a true recounting of this situation. And I think one of the reasons why maybe... You know, when we see movies where the child molester is evil and, you know, and it's very black and white, is I think somewhere we're insulted. Because I think somewhere as human beings and as people who are in families and people who have dealt with whatever trauma they've dealt with, we know somewhere that really isn't how it is. And I think one of the amazing things about this script is, at least in my personal experience, it is the closest I have ever come across. And I've even personally tried to write a play about about my own experiences, and I read the script, and I was like, "Well, there you go. <laughs> I'm going to put that play down because it's uh, apparently been done and brilliantly." <laughs> you know, so I, I think I think that's a lot. But I mean, the audiences are. We're going to ask audiences to to step up, and 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 um, I think part of the whole experience of it is to have a bird's eye view of of what it's like. But you know, you walk away thinking and feeling and I mean that's the whole purpose of what we do that's theater yeah and it's a bird's you eye know? view from from all perspectives <laughs> from all because perspectives. you get you get uh, Jerry's perspective obviously as the uh, the abuser you get the mother's perspective as somebody who knows there's something wrong the instincts are telling her there's something wrong but she doesn't know how to figure it out you get Mike's perspective who's the brother of Jerry and he's sort of the guy who's trying to keep his family together and he's like no no everything's fine it's all great everything's okay and then of course you do even though 
though we never see Andy on the stage, who's the child, um, you do get his perspective in a lot of ways yeah, through absolutely. the storytelling that happens by each of the characters who relate to him, but also through the scenes that are talking about him and what's going on with him. So it's it's really, you see it from all angles. And then is... you get music and <laughs> Okay, well, let's address and... that. <laughs> let's address that right now, mister. Um, okay, it is weird when you say, I'm doing a, and I'm doing the quotation mark thing with my fingers right now, a musical about child abuse. It really does, because you think, it's like, gonna people give, are going to... You know, you know, the right. puppet Where's musical, the this is going to have a... Well, yeah. it's funny that you mention that because what happened in Atlanta, when, when Actors Express picked up this play, you know, Variety got a hold of it and they heard about, here's this musical, and they dubbed it, you know, the pedophile musical, in quotes. And so there was Just a... so insulting. Absolutely. But this family association in Georgia had this huge letter writing campaign because they heard musical and they heard child abuse and they thought, well, you must be making fun of it because that's There's what we gotta know. There's got to be a kick line in there There's somewhere. There's jazz hands and kick lines. Right. Like that's, yeah. that's what's taking place. But really, they hadn't even stepped through the doors to see what the play is. Well, here's my point, though. It's also like when Sweeney Todd came out, I mean, you know, it was the cannibal music. It was the cannibalism musical in the 70s, you know. And I mean, the muse, there is no kick. Uh, last time I checked, there's no kick line or jazz hands in Sweeney Todd. No, there's not. There isn't. Not right? yet. Not, not yet. yet. <laughs> I mean, maybe somewhere like the Beef and Boards Dinner Theater, but not here. Um, not at the Nymph. Not, at, not on my watch. <laughs> not at the Nymph. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can totally understand how people would clearly hear the words child abuse and hear musical put together and immediately just create this whole idea in their mind of how that must be offensive in some way. But I, I have to tell you, again, as someone who personally has lived through this experience, I mean, if anybody would be offended, it would be me. <laughs> I mean, really, if anybody would right. be offended, it would be me. And I am not even not offended, I am so far the other way. I felt like this need to support this piece. I had to be in this piece. I had to get this piece out there. You know, I mean, I feel... Because bottom line, I mean, everyone's going to have their own experience when they come see this show. There's no predicting what experience you will have when you walk out. But I will share with you mine, just from reading it, is I felt less alone. I felt validated. I felt less alone. And it was like, I read it and went, oh, fine. somebody else gets it. And not only somebody else gets it, but we're going to get a chance to like help other people get it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and it was a very positive experience for me. It wasn't negative at all. It was extremely therapeutic and healing and wonderful. Yeah. And well, one of the things that happened in both the Austin production and the Atlanta production was uh, we had in Austin, we had support from some local therapists, and in Atlanta, they had support from Stop It Now uh, Georgia, which has in, also endorsed, Stop It Now National has endorsed this play here, the production here in New York, because so many people see this play, and then they are, they have that reaction, and they want to talk to somebody about Absolutely. it. It's either they they have experienced something in their past that they want to talk about, or they, they see this play, and they're like, I'm concerned about somebody that I know, and I just want to talk to somebody about it. It opens up this dialogue dialogue that is, is sort of the power of theater that you're going to get not just reading statistics on a page which is sort of the danger of it yeah, but it you get to live it thing. yeah in a lot of ways from every different i mean that's another thing the fact that we do come at this story from so many different angles and so many different people the mother the husband the brother the therapist you know mm -hmm. the the perpetrator i mean we there there's no way you're going to walk away from this show not having 
had connection with somebody, not having identified with somebody. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's genius writing, in my opinion. I don't know. But what do I know? <laughs> At this point, we probably should you know, take a listen to a little bit of the music for okay. the show. Do you want to set up this first song we're going to play? Uh, the first song that we're going to play is a song called Love Poison. It's uh, sung by Jerry's character, Jerry, um, who is being played here by Harris Saran, who does it brilliantly. Uh, this recording is of Tommy Schoffler, who was in the original production. Um, and the play is really about sort of the turmoil that he's feeling on the inside, uh, all the stuff that's going on with him inside and why he can't just turn it off and make it go away. All right, let's take a listen. Love, why do you follow me around? Why do you wake me with your sound while I am sleeping? Love, why do you poison me this way? I cannot take another day without have infected both my eyes so I see smiling everywhere love nobody wants to see your face the way you treat me is a disgrace you come close then disappear Drowning in a pool of my deviant desire. Love, it would be kinder if you left. I would be lonesome and bereft, but I wouldn't have my soul on fire. Like to veer off topic very briefly. My, my listeners, my listeners know that you know, you know, being what we are here as an internet program, that we've been following very closely all the equity rulings and things with the actors. And I know that we were just chatting before Aunt Donna about some interesting things with the <laughs> the new media things. And uh, I'm kind of curious to get your perspective on. You said you just. Uh, in terms of what's allowed with some filming, you said there was an interesting kind of phrasing that... that <laughs> oh, my God, my agent is going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> um, the issue at hand is um, just that because with the new technology, and not even the new technology that we have now, 
it's the new technology that we don't even know is going to exist, like in a day, in a week. And so it's hard to, to write these contracts for performers mm-hmm. because you're trying to cover what already is and also cover what isn't yet and what will be. And so I was in a situation where I'm doing this show and and they asked me to please, can you just, you know, shoot us an MP3 saying this quote and we're going to use it for the website. And then like the next sentence was, and maybe other stuff. And I was like, what? (laughs) Because, you know, I'm all for like doing it for the website. That's great. You know, but like, and other stuff made me nervous. What does that mean? Is that like, we're going to tack it onto a radio commercial? I mean, I'm after, like that's a union thing. Are they going to tack it onto a you know, TV commercial. I mean, who who knows? So I was talking to my agent, and I was like, you know, I don't I don't know what the deal is with this. And he said, Oh my god! He said the issue is it's so nebulous. But he said it was described at this literally this actors' equity meeting agent meeting for this new contract was it's like porn. You know it when you see it. I was like, what? <laughs> Okay, but like the problem for me is like I know porn when I see it, but like what if I see it mm, a month after I record it and I've all of a sudden become part of porn and no one asked my permission? Like that's the problem. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, seriously, that's like a, like the official term. So does this show feel like porn or are we on the safe wow. side? <laughs> this, show, this show in particular that we're doing right now? This is like, definitely what are we talking about? Our radio show right here is totally a triple X movie. Well, yeah. Okay, I, have, I have a question in terms of would this feel like porn or would this feel like, except one thing that I've always thought would be a great promotional thing, but is just completely unallowed right now in with all the rulings. And I'm just kind of curious your opinion, Donna, as somebody who, you've, d- you've done a fair bit of replacement work as well on Broadway, haven't you? Uh, a little bit, yeah. I've always thought because the replacements never get to go on the cast recording. You know, yeah, it's a bummer. I've always thought it would be fun to get some, you know, kind of prominent replacements every once in a while in the studio here to sing, you know, one of their numbers, which I think would be great promotion. I think a good that ch- would be fabulous. What would, would that you... feel like porn or would that feel, I mean, does that, no. does that feel commercial? No, you know, it wouldn't be that... porn because I'm sure the people who would be coming in to record it would be thrilled <laughs> to have it set down for, you know, history and, and for posterity. Um... I mean, I believe you'd have to pay them a little something. <laughs> the producer would. The producer, yeah. Somebody would have to pay them something. I don't, I, I don't get something. paid damn anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're like, dude, I got, I got nothing. Um, I think that's a great idea. I think you should do an album that's like, we have to think of a fun name for it, though. Well, you can't call it The Replacements. That's the awkward. The Replacement Record. Well, you know, just we do a show every two weeks. It's an interview show, and we do have occasionally, we t- occasionally we get to have performances on the show, and, you know, some shows don't care if equity hears or not. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. The truth comes out. Um, I know in my, in, I mean, all I can say is in my situation when I've replaced and, you know, haven't been been able to, you know, be in the pictures outside the theater and do the recording, you just kind of, you kind of walk in every day and go, just a little bit. <laughs> and I'm not talking about full orchestral big to do. No, like, but know, just, just to a, like set it down and have yeah. it. I think it's a great idea. I fully support you. Yeah, let I some of the listeners here go, get that wow, I never out. saw totally. Donna, I never saw Donna is playing that role, but wow, she's saying. There's no recording know. of her anywhere. <laughs> but yeah, that sort of thing too, just helps, I mean, I would think it would help the show <laughs> at the end of the day because you're trying to, the show is continuously totally. evolving. And, well, you know. especially if you have like a big start. Like when we did Sweeney and Patty went and did Gypsy at Ravinia for three weeks, we had like the brilliant Judy Kay. You know, and, the, and, and Judy went and did the tour. There, as far as I know, there's no 
proper yeah. recording of her doing. I'm sure there's <laughs> thousands of bootlegs <laughs> from across do. the country, but you know, I mean, I certainly would would love to have both Patty and and Judy's rendition of Mrs. Lovett. Oh, that's a great idea. All right, well, we'll get back on topic after we listen to the next song here from Love, Jerry. Do you want to set up this one? Uh, the next song we're going to hear is a song called I'll Hold Up the World. It's sort of the last song in the play. It's sung by Mike, who um, is literally trying to do that through the whole play. He's literally trying to hold up the world for all the people in his life. He's He very much wants to be a good father and a good husband and a good brother and a good family man. And uh, at this point in the play, it feels like he's at a loss and that's all he wants to do. So that's what the song comes in. I'll hold up the world I'll hold up the world for you If you're tired and want to rest It'll be alright I'll stay here and do my best To stay awake tonight You can lay your burden down, close your eyes and try it. All the noisy city sounds, I'll keep them quiet. I'll hold up the world, I'll hold up the world for you. I'll be strong for you. I'll stay on guard the whole night through. I'll work hard for you, for you. I'll work hard for you. You've got leftover regret, but it won't last. I will help you to forget, put it in the past. You've got troubles on your mind, give them to me. I will get the sun to shine through what was gloomy. I'll hold up the world, I'll hold up the world for you. I'll hold up the world for you. Yes. All right, we're about to about to wrap up the the longest nymph interview. I think. <laughs> <laughs> what? This, this has been fun. You know, actually, I think you you got it. You got the longest nymph interview in the show. Awesome. Oh, yes. Um, we've probably got the shortest show, so it makes up for <laughs> there it. There you go. Ninety minutes in and out, no intermission. It's all about so we should probably get to the parting shots. And I heard you mention while we were listening that you wanted to talk about the the score. A little I bit. do want to talk about the score just briefly. Um, it's not a conventional score, and I think that's a, a really smart move um, because our our show is pretty much a play with music, mm-hmm. and the score itself is is um, sort of eclectic Americana. Mm-hmm. You know, where it's it's got it serves the emotional moment of the show. It's almost like a sorbet score. <laughs> to somebody else. <laughs> somebody because the the, uh, the the play is it's. It's kind of like ice cream, but not really. <laughs> it's funny. You should mention ice cream. Um, Save it. <laughs> no, um, it's. It, I mean, the, it's a lot to take in. You know, the play and 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 the the songs serve as as the character's sort of emotional life. The character sort of steps out of the story, and sort of expands on where they are emotionally. And I think for the audience, it's a bit of a 
sorbet, where you just sort of, you have a moment to just sort of experience the, the emotional life and then breathe and then move on with the story, you yeah, know? But I, I, I mean, the score is fantastic. It has... Um, blues, jazz, folk, yep. uh, even a little Kurt Vile kind of stuff going on in Absolutely. there. Some gospel, some, mm -hmm. you know. Well, one of the things that Megan, you know, she was often asked uh, about the play and whether why it's a play and why it's not, uh, why it's not, why it's a musical and not a play. And one of the reasons was it's because of the subject matter being so difficult and the story that's being told being so difficult. She wanted a way that the audience could experience it, but be able to live through it for lack of a better way to put it because you do have to sort of take those moments where you're like oh right it's like okay. a roller coaster you know yeah. where you're like go up you know and then you go down and then you kind of have this little plateau for a little bit to let it sort of catch your breath and then you go up and then you go down you know I think it's yeah. it's like that I mean you love the roller coaster you enjoy the roller coaster you have a good time at the roller coaster <laughs> but you couldn't do all of this you couldn't the whole do time. it the whole time or you'd you know not it wouldn't lose be fun lose your shit <laughs> you let's put it that way you'd lose your shit you you totally swore. You totally swore, you fucking bastard. <laughs> <laughs> that felt like porn. Hey, hey, hey for so. porn! <laughs> All right, so Love Jerry is September 18th through yep. the 27th at Nymph. Um, and the website is canyoulovejerry.com. That's it, yep. And uh, what theater are you guys We at? are at TBG, which is at 312 West 36th Street, third floor. Um, I think that's between eighth right. and ninth. Between eighth and ninth Avenue. I actually wish we had time to talk for another 15, 20 minutes. This it has been be fun. Great. Absolutely. <laughs> but I thank you, JT Arbogast and yes. Donna Lynn Champlin, so much for stopping by the studio and best of luck in your run. Thanks thank so much. Thanks for having us. On the boards. A jazz club in 1953 is the setting for a new musical, Play It Cool, that definitely takes advantage of the jazz musical idiom. And that is September 22nd through October 4th at the New York Musical Theater Festival. And we have got director Sharon Rosen and music director arranger Joe Baker in the studio here to talk with us about the show and share some of the music from it. How are you guys doing? Good, Michael. Hi, welcome. All right, well, first Thank things you. first, what is Play It Cool about? Play It Cool is about five people who come together this one special day in this jazz club. Someone new to town to see what's out there in Hollywood, and the old-timer who's stayed away from singing and just helping others find themselves and how their worlds collide. So what was kind of, you know, what was your interest in getting involved in this project? And Did you know the writers? And I knew the writers I, for many years and been involved in this project for at least three years and seen it in its many incarnations. Uh, it's a compelling piece. It, it's a gay jazz musical, but yet it's identifiable. Is that how you put on the billboards? The gay, gay jazz, jazz musical. musical. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, that's, that's underneath. That's when you get into the theater, and that's what it is. So it's interesting because it's telling a different story, but yet really the story is not different. It's everyone's story. It's lost love. It's trying to find who you are. And so what's compelling is that everyone is the same and has to go through the same dramas and life lessons to get ahead. It's also, I think, that, that uh, jazz as a metaphor for personal expression, especially jazz in the 50s, was really breaking out of the mold with bebop and, and uh, the beginnings of um, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, 
that as a metaphor for free expression, this was a kind of a club where during the day in Hollywood, you passed for straight and you went to that club and you could be yourselves. Way back then. Way back then. Because that never happens anymore. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and in a way, it's, it's, what's interesting is that even the club had very strict, you know, it, it, in truth, clubs, uh, gay clubs in L.A. had very strict rules. Uh, you can elaborate on that, Sharon, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, uh, it was illegal to be gay. You would either be sent to jail or sent to a mental institution. It was considered a mental disease until the early 70s, actually. Um, but Hollywood actually was much freer in the 20s and 30s until Fatty Arbuckle killed this actress and all the studios put in a morals clause in the contracts and then everything had to go undercover and behind the scenes. And that's when the um, religious groups were able to overtake the law enforcement and really insist that this was an evil, bad thing. <laughs> so so it was, you, there used to be parties yeah. and all this fun stuff in the 20s and everyone was out and open. When the movie industry started, it was a safe haven for entertainers who used to travel around the country to come to, to be. They were invited there. They wanted to find entertainers. And then all of a sudden, you know, everything went backwards. And all of a sudden, they couldn't be themselves, and they had to hide. And these clubs were raided all the time. People killed themselves when they got caught because it just ruined their lives. I mean, it was a pretty scary time. I mean, I know now there's it's still not as as stable as it should be, but um, then it, it was truly brave. Um, and only in L.A. and New York were people even able to find clubs like this. And he's saying that they had certain rules, I'm assuming, to protect the you know, non anonymity and identity of the people. And So I'm assuming you're not talking about rules like red handkerchief in right pocket, blue handkerchief in left pocket. <laughs> no, but that's a good idea. <laughs> no, but also I think it, it was that, uh, you know, they couldn't operate as, well, it's very much like prohibition, you know, they couldn't operate as an open sort of a, a nightclub. It had to be fairly secret. The, the interesting thing about the play is that the play does come out with a sort of a possible happy ending as uh, jazz expressed itself, so can people who are, who are not heterosexual start to express themselves. But the play, what's interesting about the play is that the music and the story of, you know, of play it cool, of being secretive, but still trying to express yourself comes forth in the play. And the music is great. A little biased, but the music is great. Well, maybe now's a good time to take a listen to the first song from uh, the demo recording. Do you want to set this first song up? Uh, yeah, terrific. It's called uh, Hip to Your Tricks. And it's a kind of a, a plot song, uh, but done in jazz. It's uh, two people have been found out. Um, for causing some trouble, and they're getting a talking to by um, one by their lover and one by um, a friend um, saying, We're not going to take it anymore. Right. A jazz argument, if you will. Jazz All right. argument. All right, let's take a listen. You got your prettier smile on, your high heels and nylon, dressed up in satin, your cat all over the place. So don't lie to my face and say you're just seeing a friend. Some friend, don't pretend 
Though you're keeping your kicks out of sight I'm hip to your tricks So don't tell me I'm wrong Cause I'm right You got your bedroom eyes open Your sex appeal smoking Your hand in my pocket And though I won't stop it I see you gave a little to me So I won't ask for the facts Just relax, no attacks Though you're thinking this hick's not so bright I'm hip to your tricks So don't tell me I'm wrong Cause I'm right I've been making excuses For all of the bruises You've made on my heart Cause I love you Yes, I love you But the list is too long now For this game to go on now So you'd better get smart You better get wise Better shape up And take this advice You got your prettiest smile on Your high heels and nylon Dressed up in satin Your cat all over the place So don't lie to my face And say you're just seeing a friend Some friend Don't pretend Though you're keeping your kicks out of sight I'm hip to your tricks Know the words to the song I'm hip to your tricks Know the short and the long I'm hip to your tricks So don't tell me I'm wrong Cause I'm right Now who are the writers for Play It Cool? Larry Dean Harris um, and Martin Cassell are the book writers. Mark Winkler is the lyricist. Phil Swan is the composer who's written um, most of the songs. And I understand there's a bunch of And then there's a bunch of people. The piece started with Larry Dean Harris taking Mark Winkler's catalog and finding songs that he liked and writing a story around those songs. And then bringing Phil on and going back into the story and writing more story-oriented songs. So we've had a lot of different music come in and out of this piece. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a who's who of L.A. songwriters. I also understand you got at least, I know, two very popular uh, theater actors involved in the show. Yes, Sally Mays and Josh Strickland are doing the show. Josh Strickland, didn't he do Tarzan? He did. So you're getting him all oiled up for publicity? for? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> he is the sweetest person. You know, for someone who, you know, was the was the lead of a show for two years. And oiled up on every poster up, in Manhattan. <laughs> um, is the nicest person and easiest person to work with. Um, it's wonderful because so often being in this industry is so hard. Um, people aren't as flexible and and he's just willing to jump in and do anything. Yeah, he's great. He came, you know, he came from American Idol, came into theater through Disney, and as a man cub, he really swings. <laughs> uh, he uh, I think he's very excited to be in this uh, this play and he 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 understands this music very well. It's a major major contribution to the show. Well, actually, and, and what hooked me in, because I've never had a chance to see her live, though I've been addicted to her performance on uh, Close Than Ever Forever, Sally Mays. Absolutely. I think Sally's, uh, if I can speak for her, she's very excited about this show because she has the jazz Let's chops. Let's get the puppet. Puppet on your hands. Yeah. <laughs> I got it, Mays. 
Yes, hi, I can swing. <laughs> she, uh, you know, she's a jazz lover, but she's also a jazz performer. And, you know, she sort of got through music uh, that way. And so for her to marry the two of of uh, acting and and singing and jazz singing, and she she does a lot of improvisation in the show. I think she's she's a really a perfect blend uh, for this role and couldn't be the nice couldn't be nicer. She can scat. She can scat. <laughs> she can scat. She's incredible and and just so excited and it's such a different character for her to play too. So she can't wait to get her claws into the character as well. All right. Well, we got another demo here from uh, the show. This is called Future Street. Mm-hmm. And I want to set this one up. This is um, the character Will that Josh plays, and this is Josh singing, um, by the way. Uh, his He's been taking in all the lessons of jazz. When he comes to the club, he's never really sang a jazz song before. He just knows he wants to be a singer. And this is the first time he really steps up to the mic and shows everyone what he's made of. Right. He's kind of the, the character of Will is a, you know, fresh off the bus uh, character, and he ends up in this club uh, discovers that uh, he's not the only gay person around. And uh, Sally Mays plays the character of Mary, the club owner, who instructs him, instructs him. And the interesting thing is that Will, Will has been listening to jazz secretly. His parents told him it was the devil's music back then. So he wasn't out to listen. But he has, he has listened to it, and he really blossoms to become a full-fledged jazz singer in the show through Mary's tutelage. On the corner of yesterday, half a block from should have been. I'm walking fast and never looking back again. Cause my heart says it can't wait, it's tapping out a brand new beat. Time to meet my fate on Future Street. Future Street, the sidewalk's finer. Future Street, the sun shines bright. Just street, the people have some pep in their step. Everybody's traveling light right there at the intersection of satisfaction and complete. Gonna live my dreams on Future Street. I'm gonna live my dreams on Future Street Now there's a girl that's waiting for me With tomorrow in her eyes Don't need a crystal ball to know the girl's a prize Oh, 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 I'll go out window shopping Be cuddly, so sweet Stores stay open late on Future Street Future Street a rich man's playground, Future Street, a brand new day. Future Street, you can't find a single red light, and traffic's always going your way. Yeah, on the corner of faith and hope, half a block from what will be. Finally made my peace with destiny. Oh, I know I'm feeling lucky, got direction at my and my feet. You know it's me and my baby walking down Future Street. Whatever that bow is just me and my baby walking down Future Street. It's just me and my baby walking down Future Street. <laughs> 
So with festival, there's always challenges galore, and I'm kind of curious. Ooh, boy. I'm kind of curious your opinions and what you feel are going to be the biggest challenges uh, getting the show together. Well, one of the biggest challenges is getting getting the right actors because everybody's auditioning for for the uh, how many is it? Four hundred shows? Yeah, twenty four. Twenty four. So, uh, and there's a you know tremendous talent in New York. So it's really fun to have these people, um, you know, do it for. Uh, you know, not enough compensation, but to do a really excellent job. Uh, I think it's exciting to be part of a festival, and it's a little confusing and overwhelming, too, because of the 24 shows. You know, it's sort of, you know, trying to make your mark. Uh, well, it's still nothing like the Fringe. <laughs> True. <laughs> 300 shows? Right. Yeah. That is and counting. <laughs> the festival's really organized. They've divided us up into theater groups. So we share space with six shows. So we're more dealing with that negotiation than having to take on the entire festival and worry about all 24 shows. But it, it's definitely a, a coordination, you know, having show times at different days and having to move in and out and, um, you know, having the, the, the actors be flexible with their times, do a 1 a.m., 1 p.m. show and then do a... 4.30 show one day and then 8 o'clock another day. 10.30? Is there a 10.30? No, it's 1. Okay. Now, I hear some horns in the arrangement. Are, are you getting a horn section for the... I know we're on, a festival, we're on a festival budget. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but people are free to bring their horns to the show. Uh, no, I think we're going to save that for a, for a bigger production. Um, you know, it's... it's What's I was, nice I was just going to say, how are you going to deal with the singers singing over a blasting horn in a you know, small... Oh, we yeah. got the singers to do it. We, <laughs> we, we didn't yeah. need that. Um, yeah, we're going to do a very, you know, very intimate piano, bass, and drums uh, arranging. And uh, uh, especially with the, where the theater we're going to be in... And we what do, theater are you in, by the way? We're in the TBG Theater, okay. yeah. the Barrel Groups space. 37th? 36th and 8th. Oh, 36th, that's right. Right. And um, uh, the the piano-based drums really sp- is a nice metaphor for that club, that kind of smallish club, little boat. That, uh, Joe so. even has a character name. He's, he's Smokey, the piano player. I am. With Mary am. a long time. I was of a different... Uh, uh, race, but... Now I'm just smoky. <laughs> well, you know, you could do the Robert Downey Jr. Tropic Thunder. Oh, jeez. Yeah, hey, yeah. That's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. All uh, right. So Play It Cool is September 22nd through October 4th. They can get all the in, details and the specific times at the NIMF website, or I'm assuming at your own website, playitcoolmusical.com. Yes. And uh, any other parting shots you'd like to get out about the show? Come see it. It's something different and special. Yeah. If you if you have an affinity for jazz or if even if you never listen to jazz and are sort of curious about that era, uh, I think it's a great introduction to Or if you hate jazz but you're a masochist. Right. Or you, you want to see a compelling <laughs> it is a compelling drama, whether it's jazz or not. So it, it, there's something for everybody. All right. Yeah. Well, Sharon Rosen and Joe Baker, I thank you so much for taking some time in the middle of this crazy schedule to stop down and chat about the show, and best of luck. Thank Thank you, you. Michael. Appreciate it. 
on the boards. Lines is a new song cycle appearing at the New York Musical Theater Festival this year. And to talk about the show, we have Timothy Huang, who is the composer-lyricist, and one of the actresses, Becca Ayers, who is currently appearing in South Pacific in Moonlighting. And <laughs> Nymph, how are you guys doing? <laughs> Good. Great. What's up, man? <laughs> Good. So first off, uh, just tell us a little bit about what uh, Lines is about, and then we'll check out one of the songs. Right here. on. Lines is just a song cycle. Uh, the idea came to me about a year ago when a theater company in L.A. had... Uh, asked me to write something for them. I was working on two other projects at the same time, and they were actually book musicals, and I didn't really have the headspace for uh, another linear narrative. So I said, why don't I just write you a bunch of songs? Uh, and then it just sort of developed from there. The idea is that within the cycle itself, uh, the word and the image of line uh, or lines comes up in all manner of different ways. There's, you know, uh, there's body lines, lines of melody, chorus lines, um, in one scene, for example, there's a woman who's sitting, you know, in her bathroom and she's like contemplating what happens, where, how her life will change in the next three minutes when her pregnancy test reveals either she's negative or positive or, you know, whatever. And it's just how, how that line affects her life. Um, and so throughout the, the song cycle that sort of happens, we see that kind of pop up and stuff. Um, and that's pretty much it. Well, that's actually the first song we're going to play, right? It is so, indeed. So maybe we should just play that right now <laughs> since you've set it up. Okay. <laughs> um, you sh halfway through the song, there's another dude who comes in. He he doesn't. He's not really in the same. Uh, he's not in the same place per se. He's sort of in his own little world, and he's at a uh, a, a clinic. We'll say that. Uh, all right. <laughs> Take a listen. So I'm standing in the bathroom and I'm looking in the mirror and I think, ugh, I'm so not impressed. Though my smile could be brighter, my skin could be clearer And standing in this bathroom has me deeply distressed Then I look at the ring in the bathtub And I notice the hair on the floor And I think, good God, my whole life's a facade And if it'd make a bit of difference, I'd head straight for the door But it won't, and so I'm stuck here keeping time by this hamper seconds as they pass one pair of jeans three socks and a sweatshirt are what constitute my hourglass and i see this dusty box of conceptual next to my robert ducky louise if i could fly through the roof i'd ditch the soap and the loofah and i'd migrate to the florida keys because waiting is so Never mind. Like, what if I have to stop drinking? And how could I take time off from my work? Wish I had known what the hell I was thinking when I gave in to that stupid jerk. So I'm sitting in this office, adding up all this nonsense, listening for someone to call my name. Or you'd think it would be just like taking attendance. Just take it from me, that shit is so not the same. And so I look at the pamphlets they gave me, and despite knowing they don't condemn, my brain still suspects what this reception is reflects that at the end of the day they're glad I'm me and they're them, but that's life. 
Well, that's death, depending how you perceive it And how you do determines your whole damn world It's good news or bad, depending how you receive it And if you were careful when your legs unfurled Cause two weeks ago it just didn't matter Two weeks ago I just didn't care And if you told me that night that I'd wish I'd never had her I'd have told you, bro, you just weren't there God, patience is so overrated. Patience is so overrated. Your body's on short-term loan. If I had 20 years for every minute I've waited, my time still wouldn't be my own. Can somebody tell me why they call the testing positive? And if I am, would that be such a Sweat-soaked hands, ringing eagerly, praying that forgiveness is divine. Waiting is so overrated. Waiting is so overrated. Don't to you. Tell me about it. Day after day, things get more complicated. And then you look down. You look down. You look down. There's no one around. There's no one around. You don't have a clue. It was you and your blue. But your life as you knew it is through Your fears are all becoming Negative Positive So, uh, Becca Tell yes. us a little bit about your background. You're not you're not a New Yorker. Like a lot of musical theater people, you've migrated. Yes, I've been here about 10 years, um, maybe 11 almost, um, which is strange since I continue to stay 28 years old. <laughs> um, I'm from Missouri originally, um, and somehow my sister and I both got caught up in the theater world, and so we both... Uh, it was really nice because we actually both lived here together for a long time, and um, uh, she was in Young Frankenstein, and I am in South Pacific now, and we both ended up doing regional theater and tours and stuff for years, and finally had our Broadway debuts in the last, like, three years. But, About um, time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we both actually went to Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri, and got our BFAs, and yeah, so we're Midwesterners at heart. Which is kind of funny because you really strike me as that upper crust Easterner in your uh, in your role in uh, so South nice. Pacific. It's so funny because I'm I'm a Midwesterner, but nobody seems to ever buy it because I moved to Kansas City and just you know 
nosedived. Nobody wanted me there, you know, <laughs> because I guess I'm a Midwesterner who doesn't look very much like a Midwesterner. So that's weird because I hear that everything's up to date in Kansas City. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is that, some... <laughs> is that true? <laughs> is that true? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> and Timothy, what's your kind of background as a composer lyricist? Well, actually, um, a, a lifetime ago, about ten years ago, I had uh, been. Uh, an actor as well. I graduated from NYU from Cap 21, woo, in like 90, <laughs> and, um, and was acting for a couple of years. And at the time, the climate was just, a, the landscape was a little bit different. I'm an Asian dude, and I'm six feet tall, and I don't know martial arts. So it's not <laughs> like I could just get a job doing, you know, like any of the mainstream Asian-themed shows. Uh, and so consequently, I kept on doing new work. And sometimes the work was good, and sometimes the work needed work. And I found myself more often than not sitting there thinking like, oh, I could write that better, you know, which is totally lame. <laughs> but um, at one point, an opportunity came to go back to NYU to the graduate music theater writing department. Uh, so I guess in 2000, I went back and finished in 02 and have just been writing ever since. So like, I guess the one show that I've written that people talk about still is called The View From Here. It's a one person musical. Sean Wiley did it at the Nymph like in 2005. And uh, we have a CD available that you may or may not have heard of before. Available on Amazon.com and iTunes. <laughs> um, Just in case you yeah, want it. Yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to play another song here from Lines. Uh, do you want to set this one up? Or? Sure. Um, I actually should mention the first song uh, was actually Becca singing and, and me because, you know, I was in the room at the time. <laughs> um, this one is called For This, and um, it's it's centered around, uh, it's performed here by Zandi DeJesu. She's an amazing vocalist. Um, and, and the idea is she's this, uh, well, I mentioned earlier, I'm an Asian dude, and, um, and, and I'd done theater before. You have to say that a lot because you don't have an accent. Exactly, exactly. In case, in case you know. So that people can really picture you yeah, when you're talking. Um, I'm I white, worked, by the way. Just worked. so you know. <laughs> I'm working really hard against letting the accent come out, you know. But, um, uh, so um, I guess it, the the song kind of spawned from several conversations I'd had with people feeling like uh, they didn't have as many creative choices as performers as, as they'd want or wish just because they were Asian. And so, um, so the setup is basically there's this girl who's at an audition for a very, very specific type of Broadway show. And, and it's just a chorus part, and, and she's kind of just wondering if this is what it really means to suffer for your art. So it's called For This, and it's Zandi Dehazu. She's awesome. All right. Once more, ready, go. Tambe, pot of array, turn, then we bow. Again, tambe, pot of array, turn, then we bow. Again, tambe, pot of array, turn, then we bow. That connects from arms up, on your guard, squat, kick, land, and tombe, pot of turn, then we bow. Everyone get that? Okay, ladies first from the top. Five, six, seven, eight. Head down, hands pray. Tippy toe, tippy toe. Back and forth, up, down. Tippy toe, tippy toe. Arms up on your guard, squat, kick, land, and tombe, pot of turn, then we bow. Very nice. Now, remember, there's a lot of character working behind this. Your courtesans and eunuchs. Everything is timid, everything is respectful. Think of it like acting only without words. Thank you. Next two, and five, six, seven, eight. 
at this? I mean, really? Did I suffer on all fours to clean the grimy bathroom floors and any myriad of chores at Broadway dance so I could come here just for this? I mean, really? For this? Are you serious? Four years of conservatory Sacrifice for fame and glory Just to have in store again A call to play the whore again And stuck here with these sweaty men Who all have better bodies God, he's gonna make me do it all again Any questions? So the emperor says It freezes me to watch Panda But we're supposed to be hearing him in his native language Any questions about the routine? Anybody? Sandy? Good. Let's move on to the pas de deux. Becca, you're the girl. Marty, you're the panda. Jared and Sandy, on deck. My God, what am I doing here? Suffering for my art, no less. And yeah, a part's a part, I guess. But even if the role were mine, it's still the fucking chorus line. And though it's lame when anyone starts to whine, gotta believe that I am better than that beyond the abyss is a sunrise What I achieve within the life that I've got When I choose to or not is the real prize What's the point of standing here on the stage If my heart can't get over the rage The script should be ripped apart page by page by page Nice Zandy, you and Jared. Five, six, seven, eight. Excellent. I really felt like you were in danger. Switch partners, Becca, you and Jared first. Five, six, seven, eight. Okay. That wasn't terrible. Was some technique in that, albeit tongue-in-cheek in that I really doubt a courtesan would pirouette On day dawn with any ninja weapons on Considering the setting is in Taiwan Gonna believe that there's a reason for this That I shouldn't dismiss this as fruitless Find a reprieve that shows behind the surreal That despite what I feel, there's a Something underneath that I can embrace That says I'm not some ethnic disgrace That says I'm more than a face you can replace I've been dancing since before I could speak Dancing cheek to cheek and toe to toe In my mother's first studio Showing children twice my age How their muscles should engage And other things they should already know But where does all that get me When no one here will let me Affect the moves that set me on fire Someone 911 The situation is Okay, does anyone here not know how to use nunchucks? Gotta get out of here before it's too late There's no time for debate, I'm not bowing With or without a job, I'm keeping my soul Screw the show, screw the roll, the kowtowing If 
kind of thinking of that song i'm curious really quickly can you give me the best bad horrible stereotypical asian accent you've had to do <laughs> oh my gosh um there are so many you know here's a funny story i uh i used to do voiceovers um for like you know radio and commercials and stuff like that i i auditioned once over the phone uh, back when the olympics were in australia Apparently, there's a dude named John Ian Wing, who is uh, Australian but Chinese by ethnicity, who had written to the Olympic Committee at the time. It was like right after the, or right during the war, maybe right after the war, uh, World War II, rather. And uh, and he, you know how like the, the closing ceremony now has like all of the different countries walking and intermingling. Apparently, it wasn't always like that. It used to be similar to the opening ceremony where they come out as like, you know, in their own respective countries and stuff like that. And he was like, no, 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 this is all wrong, this is all wrong. And he was like 18 years old. He writes the, the Olympic Committee a letter and he says, it shouldn't be like that. It should be like everybody, you know, it celebrates harmony and yada, yada, yada. Um, Australian dude, but happens to be ethnically Chinese. So they were going to do this segment where like they cut to interviews of him like, you know, uh, like in, in present day just talking about it. And they wanted me to voice over parts of his letter. Right, like that he'd written as an 18-year-old. I auditioned over the phone with an Australian accent, booked it, got into the studio, and then they said, now can you say like this? Maybe say, oh, dear Mr. Olympic Committee. Oh. And I'm like, dude, this guy was born in Australia, <laughs> and you can actually hear him on the video like talking. Um, but that's, that's, that's kind of the, the stuff that, like I don't mind doing the accent if it's, if it's like real, if, it, if, if yeah. it's authentic, or if there's a reason for it, but that just seemed kind of excessive to me. So. That's funny. And Beck, I understand uh, you're in the process of finishing up a solo album. Is that yeah, I'm doing all kinds of things, and um, that's kind of how Tim and I started getting our getting this project going. Wait, that's not. That's no, not that's right. totally cool. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He would help me with my songs, and then in in exchange, I would sing some of his songs and then he was like do you want to do this and I was like yes it's really good can I sing all the songs can I sing the other songs that other people are singing too but um, yeah so I'm just I'm working with one guy um, on an album called uh, well our band is called Baby Goes Bang and our first album is called Brainy Pants so we're getting that mastered and then um, yeah trying to figure out a way to get my own stuff uh, produced I recorded my last show that I did at the Beachman so um, I'm mixing and mastering that. You so recorded least, that? Yeah. Oh, my God. So at least I have something. Yes, of course. <laughs> that was like the greatest <laughs> yeah. concert experience of my life. I Shut was, up. I was amazed. He's biased a little bit. <laughs> Not, no, I, I'm wholly objective. <laughs> Thank I'm you. Objective. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. So, so, um, yeah. So that's so I'm trying to uh, get that out just to have something up to date out, you know. In Kansas City. In Kansas that's right. City. Yeah. <laughs> to Kansas City. All right, so Lines is, uh, is it's playing three days at Nymph. Uh, four shows over three days, uh, two on the opening, which is September 30th, I think, it's yeah. a Tuesday. And uh, the, the October 2nd and October 3rd. And uh, people want to find out more information, they can go to timothyhuangarts.com, which is H-U-A-N-G. Right? That is correct. 
and uh, not, backslash lines. Not the easiest website in the world to find, but if you Google me, you'll find and it. And we'll have a link website. here in our show notes as well. So. Yeah. Right on. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming down and chatting. Timothy Huang and uh, Beth Ayers. Becca. Becca. Yes. Oh, I, I said it right the other it's time. It's my yes, spelling is bad. <laughs> I can't spell my own name. <laughs> Sometimes in my dreams, I call you Beth. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. <laughs> I'll take that joke home. I'll work on it. All right. Becca, okay, <laughs> sorry for that. And best That's of luck right. with lines. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. On the boards. Try to imagine if bedbugs took over New York City, though recently that doesn't seem to be much imagination. But Bedbugs with three exclamation points is a new musical at the New York Musical Theater Festival playing from September 16th through the 27th. And we have got uh, book writer, lyricist Fred Souter and composer Paul Leshen. In here, did I pronounce those right? It's Pretty exceptionally, good. yes. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot to ask you right before we started. Yeah. Uh, you want to you want to introduce yourselves and say your names so people can connect the voice with... Uh... All right. Well, this voice belongs to Paul Eschen, composer of Bedbugs, triple exclamation point. And this voice belongs to Fred Sauter, book writer, lyricist. And I guess let's start off with the basics. Tell us a little bit about Bedbugs, the musical. Bedbugs, the musical. Well, we could start out with bedbugs. Um, based, based on the uh, true accounts of many people struggling with bedbugs and bedbugs being an omnipresent feature of post-millennial New York City, we decided to write a musical about bedbugs, and we had decided that we wanted to write a rock musical, and we figured out how to put all this together. That was, what, what kind of drugs are you on when you sit around oh, and go, acid, let's write crack, a musical dope, about LSD, bedbugs! <laughs> oh, yeah! yeah! It's fun. It's, it's, fun. <laughs> it's a natural yeah. thing that we, that we have to do to take something that's a real problem and take it to a fantastical level. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know if we needed to hallucinate to think about this, but bedbugs, uh, they kind of, they have this theatrical thing about them where they crawl into your bed with you and attack you in the night and just... It's very personal, it, very emotional and psychological. It brings up a lot of issues of fear myself, we, and obsession. I had a big bedbug infestation last December. That really? Yeah. We actually seem to, luckily, unlike most people I hear about, have dealt with them and gotten rid of them, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not easy, I hear. This is dun dun dun. The yeah. more you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, so we decided to write this about a uh, female exterminator. We didn't have one of those. Well, I guess my my girlfriend was the female exterminator. She, oh. she was a bed bug hunter at night. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what did she use? Uh. Just tons of sh- bug spray. The biggest thing is we just had to wrap up our bed in, like, you know, it's still wrapped up. We we, we think we dealt with them. It's almost a year now. But, yeah, yeah, and you put tape on the corner of the <laughs> beds. And, but, but still, you... Our bed is a big-ass <laughs> condom around it. <laughs> yeah. So the female exterminator... Mm-hmm. And the female exterminator's mother happened to have been killed by bedbugs when she was a small child. In 1989. In 1989, one of our favorite years in music ever. Uh, home of Taylor Dane and Def Leppard and all of that great stuff. Yes. Uh, so that's kind of the music that we chose to include based on the time period when Carly's mother's death happened. And uh, she goes on to, uh, to s- create this chemical serum that's designed to eliminate bedbugs forever and of 
course, she goes overboard and a little overboard, yeah. And what happens for? And the, she uh, and she accidentally does mute. she pour some sugar on them. She, <laughs> she kind of does. Yes. Well, and later on in the lo- show, love bites. I was just gonna say, <laughs> love bites. She learns. She learns. Um, yeah. So that she mutates them accidentally, and they turn into six foot tall psych- sexual uh, monsters. Yeah. Rock singing monsters. Attractive monsters. Very handsome, yeah. yes. <laughs> How was the casting call? Looking for attractive bedbugs. <laughs> Pretty much. We got, we got what we wanted. Yeah. <laughs> We're extremely happy with it's our not cast. not hard to find attractive bedbugs in New York City. No. Well, before we continue, maybe we should listen to one of the songs here from the sure. show, your demo. Do you want to set up this first song we're going to play? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, uh, I recorded all of the music to this show as kind of my compositional tool and sang all of the parts myself, including the female vocals. So for, forgive me if I don't sound like a woman when I'm singing the song, but you'll get the idea. The first song we're going to play is called Carly's Will, will you be more upset if people don't think you sound like a man when you're singing? Oh, that's fine. They could think, they could think that if they'd like. You know, it's... You know, it's a little draggy. <laughs> well, there's a lot of gender bending in the show anyway, yeah. as you'll find out. Yeah, so this song is uh, is the female exterminator Carly uh, mixing chemicals and uh, venting about her hatred of bedbugs and also her uh, accomplice slash assistant, Bert, her little cute sidekick who is a little bit worried about what she's getting herself into. He just read Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. <laughs> and the song begins. All right, let's take a listen. Ready? I mix, you write. We begin with cyanocyphlutrin. Wettable powder? Yes. Fluorofluoro 3, phenoxphenol methyl 3, 2 2, dichloroethanol 2 2, to create dimethyl cyclopropane carboxylate. Then, ingredient 1968. Wait, but the specific chemical identity is withheld as a trade secret. How did you. I have my ways. Cyano, type one, type two. Oh, half of these are carcinogens. Oh, this is how a scary movement begins. It's an epic battle, and I'm gonna win. It's gonna be a genocide. genocide. Nothing can break my dedication. Ever since the night my Now for the bait to simulate the smell of the mate, rotted coconut, rotten coconut, coconut. but and butane, butane, propane, propane contains an octobucycloheptene dicarboxamide, piperonal butoxide, pyrethrines, pyrethrones, pyrethrines. Are you sure? Yes. So 
nation. Today is gonna be the day. Bird, bring me the bugs. Now take that. Concerned about the, the effects Bert, on the next generation? This ain't rocket science. This is genocide. I'm gonna stake my reputation ever since the night my mama died. Nothing can shake my dedication. has Bedbugs been in, in the works with you guys? About a year and a half. Mm -hmm. oh. We began writing it March 2007. So what was, have, have you guys written many musicals before this, or is this, this your first collaboration? First collaborate. We both have written musicals yeah. before first time working together. Yeah. So what was, what was the process like for you? Well, we <laughs> met uh, and we just took a long walk along the Hudson River trying to figure out uh, what we're going to write about, and ended up eating some really great dumplings in Chinatown. <laughs> uh, I think it was a dollar for five dumplings. Yes. The price already went up. And uh, we settled on something buggy, and, and the whole process has been really fun. Uh, we wanted everything about this show to be fun, including the creative process, the rehearsal process, the casting, and, you know. So did, which, which came first? Did somebody already have the idea for bed bugs, and you contacted the other, or did you just want to work together and then... We were. Uh, I, I was wandering around one night, uh, trying to, trying to be social, which is difficult. Sometimes. I'm still trying and, uh, to find that genesis of yeah. bed bugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll tell you. Actually... You have to. Yeah. Try to find out, but we'll tell you. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I met some folks at a bar, and I happened to have mentioned to them that I'm looking to write a musical. And they said, "What kind of musical?" And I said, "A campy rock musical." And they said, "Okay, you have to meet Fred." It was kind of uh, yeah. meant to happen. It was meant to be. Meant to be. Hmm. Um, and I suggested this silly idea about writing a short musical about scabies. That's There's and, the genesis. And that's the genesis because um, I had a little bout with that in Baltimore. It's a dirty, <laughs> dirty city, Baltimore. And, um, and uh, so I wanted to just do like a fun little thing about that. And Paul suggested bed bugs as it's... A hot topic and scabies are menacing sounding. The name it sounds like rabies. Bed bugs is fun. Bed bugs. Ha ha ha. Though we do actually rhyme scabies and rabies in the first song. Just saying. So I'm kind of curious reaction wise. I mean, there it is kind of a serious epidemic right now in New York. Yes. What we've been hearing about with the bed bugs. So have people reacted as in, oh, this is going to be cool and fun to see, or are they like? Nah, I've been dealing with bed bugs. <laughs> I mean, <you> know. <laughs> uh, both. <laughs> I think people mainly have said, I had bed bugs. I'm looking forward to seeing your show. <laughs> yeah. And we promised them that they will receive revenge against bed Revenge bugs and catharsis, yes. Watching it. Uh, totally. And uh, there's a couple of blogs who've mentioned the show because they're bed bug blogs. And, uh, you know, they kind of just are fascinated by the idea of there being a musical about mutant bed bugs in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's take a listen to the next song here from your demo. Do you want to set this one up? Sure, go for it, Fred. Okay, sure. Um, this one comes in the second act. It's the second song of the second act. And um, we have just seen, uh, well, we didn't actually introduce Dion, but um, 
True, we haven't mentioned it. Yeah, we'll just mention her There's this briefly. Canadian pop singer in our show named Dion Salon, and she has a relationship with a very overbearing man named Dexter Diabolique. Carly, at this point, has been kidnapped by the bug king, Cymex, and yes. uh, they are madly in love. And uh, we also have a relationship between Bert, her sidekick, and a cute Williamsburg hipster. Uh, yes. Who, in the middle of this song, you should know... Um, gets taken out of the car by a bed bug and eaten. And you'll hear Bart, Bert, you know, going on about that in the middle of the song, in the bridge so, section. Yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's a love ballad. I love love ballads from the 80s, oh. and uh, especially duets, and we thought if we even ramped it up a notch and had a triple duet. It's actually a quadruple, because we have gay duet. bed bugs, too, who come uh, out and have a little... You'll, you'll hear it. So there's a quadruple duet voiced completely by... Oh. Oh. Yes. Every voice, <laughs> yes. All right, let's take a listen. There is a place we can go Where our feelings can be exposed Our emotions are all that we have now And all that we know So into the great beyond Follow my love But my emotions are taking control and I don't want to wait. Now you're the woman I knew you could be. Because of you I'm beginning to see. Now we'll discover a place where our love is an eternity.
All right, so Bedbugs is uh, currently playing, actually. You, uh, you're actually here the, the morning of your opening night. So. Yes, indeed. <laughs> we are now infesting the theater. <laughs> and you play through September 27th. Uh, what theater are you at? We're at the TBG Theater on 36th Street. And uh, do you have a specific website of your own? Or yeah, we do. We have, uh, well, we have the NIMP website, and we also have our site at bedbugsmusical.com. Yes. All right. Well, I wish you the best of luck as you open tonight and through the rest of your run. And uh, thank you for stopping by, Fred Sauter and Paul LaShawn. Sure. Thanks for having us. Right, All right. Thanks, okay. Michael. Great. Take Have care. On the boards. In I Come for Love, playing at Nymph on uh, September 30th through October 5th, an alien, a female alien, uh, falls to Earth and falls in love with a reporter at Roswell. And we have got the composers in from another foreign land, California, here to talk about their show. Uh, they both wrote the book music and lyrics together, Jeffrey Lyle Siegel and Terrence Atkins. How are you doing? Doing great. Terrific. I right, want to introduce yourselves quick so people can connect uh, your voice with your sure. name. My name is Terrence Atkins, co-author, co-book, co-everything. I come for love. I'm Jeffrey Siegel, Jeffrey Lyle Siegel in most instances, and uh, I co-wrote the book Music Lyrics with Terrence, and we are both co-producing our presentation at the Nymph Festival from September 30th to October 5th. All right, so first things first, uh, maybe you could elaborate a little bit on the very quick synopsis that I gave of uh, I Come for Love. This is the story of a beautiful alien girl who comes from a cold planet where they don't have love, and she comes to search for romance here on Earth. She crashes her flying saucer at Roswell on July 3rd, 1949, and she gets taken in by some locals, this shy, flat-footed young mechanic named Floyd, and he takes her to a girl that he's been in love with for years named Bessie, the waitress in the local diner, and Bessie bleaches Nino's purple hair blonde and passes her off to her mother, Mabel, who runs the diner as their distant cousin, Aileen, from Idaho. And while working at the diner, Aileen falls in love with Scoop O'Reilly, a down-on-his-luck reporter who needs a big story to get back in the game and doesn't know that this cute waitress he's falling for is actually the story of the century. When he finds out who she is, will he choose the love of his life or the story to put him back on the top? Now, you haven't practiced that at all, have Never. you? Never. Never. <laughs> Never. Is that the Improv. Hollywood speak, that you got 30-second elevator pitch? <laughs> yes, I'm a, I'm a Chicagoan, actually, I, but I've been living in L.A. for 10 years, which is where I met Terrence, and I've, I've learned the art of the pitch. Got to get it out quick. The doors are closing. That's right. But it's very important, too, when you're trying to write a show that you think will be commercial, just as in the movie business, you have to be able to describe it in a way to somebody that they can turn around and tell their husband or boyfriend or buddies, let's go see this show. Hey, alien girl falls in love with a reporter at Roswell, singing, dancing, lots of fun, let's go. So that's sort of, you know, if you can't describe your show in those kind of terms, you probably don't have something you can sell. Well, and you probably can't write it either. That's also true. <laughs> that's how you say that to yourself when you're writing. This is what we're writing. We did find that helped our clarifying our own thought process. Uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of times if you have a show that you can't describe, you probably don't know the path you're going down as writers either. So I'm kind of curious, since you both did co-write everything, do you have kind of, is there a process to well, we, that kind of mixing pot? Yeah, well, we start, uh, well, it's interesting how this show started. It started as a, as, a, as a short play that Jeff and I were paired up to work together on with uh, Megan Weigand, where we created two of the characters that are now in I Come For Love. But also what Jeff and I realized on that project, that he and I worked really well around the piano as co-writers, songwriters. And uh, 
So our process is just banging our head against the wall as as hard as possible until something comes out worthwhile. But we pretty much just riff off each other. We outline a lot. And um, we sit around the piano when it comes down. Sometimes it happens in five minutes. Sometimes it doesn't happen at all. But um, it's true that we we were thrown together and didn't know anything about one another. And we were like been, the, we, were like, we were like the last kids in kickball. Yeah, <laughs> they'd, they'd, they'd pick teams, and it was like Jeff and I were the last two, and it was like, oh, okay, we'll we'll go play together. Yeah, <laughs> but but it's interesting. We've we've had to. It's been a great experience for us because not only have we written a great show and learned to become great friends and collaborators, but we've learned a lot about how one has to make accommodations for one another to collaborate. Um, and also, we found that luckily we have complementary strengths, which also helps. You know, I can, I was deeply steeped in musical theater, performance, and literature, and Terrence had a lot of pop and uh, background. And well, I'm a screenwriter, also. And a screenwriter. I'm a, so I'm a story guy. But I, I think the best thing about it is that uh, Terrence is this wildly creative guy who always sees a different way to do things. And I'm sort of steeped in traditional ways of doing things, so I would like make a box sometimes, and Terrence would like to tear the box apart or redecorate it or make a different, better-looking box. I know. i got to tell you to clean that up out here in the lobby here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm great with the paintbrush. <laughs> but now we're joined by the Vulcan mind probe. I start a sentence, he finishes it, and vice versa. It's pretty bizarre, too, when we're, when we're reworking the script now. I was like, you know, what if he says, yeah, that, ah. yeah, yeah, there it is. So... All right, well, before we continue, maybe we should listen to one of the songs from uh, your demo. Or, or, or is this actually a cast recording? I understand this was... This is the cast from the uh, the, the cast in Thousand Oaks. Well, actually, the, the, the two leads are the cast from our presentation right, right. at the Thousand Oaks Festival of New Musicals in 2007. Donna Miller as Nino the Alien Girl and Robert Townsend as Scoop the Reporter. And then the ensemble is Anna... Anna... No, that's Lindsay not in this Nixon. company. Yeah, no, David Holmes is in the background. They're playing. Oh, yeah, no, you're right. That's right, Kim Huber. A lot of the cast from Thousand Oaks. All right. All right you want to set up this first song we're going to play here? Well, this is where Scoop, uh, the, the, the meteor that he thinks is just a hole in the ground. It's really the, the, the invisible flying saucer, but he thinks it's just a hole in the ground, and he realizes that he can work the town into a frenzy and make a story up out of uh, this, what he thinks is just uh, a natural uh, disaster. But little does he know how right he really is, and he ultimately puts the girl he's going to fall for in danger. All right, and the song's called? Ooga Booga Boo. All right, let's take a listen. Quiet, everyone. Your lives may depend on it. Whatever that thing was, and we all saw it. It crawled out of that crater. It's out there in the dark right now, watching us, studying us, smelling us, waiting to attack us all. Whether ten feet tall or three foot two, either way it's coming after you. Go it ooga booga 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 boo. That's right, with a thousand eyes and a hundred feet, it'll chase you screaming down the street. Go it ooga booga 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 boo. Watch out, it could swallow you in a single bite, cause the humans can't agree. I'm skinning bones, I'm lumping Either way, you'll go down here. It's big and green. I bet it's mean. Going ooga booga 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 boo. Ooga booga 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 boo. Ooga booga booga 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 booga. Somewhere out there in the dead of night, there's a creature with an axe. 
appetite going ooga, booga, 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 boo. So how long was the writing process for you two on the, on the show here? We started... Are we still on? <laughs> we started writing uh, about four years ago in 2003 when we both joined the Academy for New Musical Theater in West Hollywood, which, uh, which is now in North Hollywood. But uh, at the Academy, it's, it used to be the Lehman Engel Musical Theater Workshop West Coast edition since the 80s and has evolved into a slightly different animal. And uh, it's modeled somewhat after the BMI workshop. But there's a full, full year curriculum that you do when you join in whatever your strength is, uh, lyric writing, composing, or book writing. And then at the end of that first year, you're teamed with a complimentary collaborator to create a 15-minute mini-musical that's a final project and is presented in a theater out there in a, in a group of shows. So our 15-minute final project was a show called The Scout about our secondary characters, Floyd and Bessie. And then we, at the end of the first year, you're teamed again, and we chose to work together again to create a full-length show for your second year. And I asked Terrence what he wanted to write our full-length show about, and he said, Roswell, aliens. And I, I said, I, you're insane. You can't <laughs> write a show about Roswell and aliens. What are you going to write? But I had this idea about it. A girl comes to Earth and falls in love with an Earthling and lands in Roswell. What would that story be? And then we thought, well, let's, we realized that our, uh, The Scout was a 40s show. The period matched, and uh, we loved that period and writing songs like that. So... It just seemed to be a natural fit. And The Scout was about how a stranger blew through town and catalyzed these two kids, their relationship. And it made sense for this uh, alien girl, who we ultimately realized is here looking for one thing, for love, for the meaning of love, to uh, teach them and the, the small town of Roswell about, uh, about love. And, and, the, and she would learn the complexities of love. You know, her, her impression of love changes because it's a coming-of-age story. It's really about her learning what emotion and love really is. I'm kind of curious. What is the musical theater origin? You know, scene like out in you know. Are you are you in, you're in Los Angeles, right? Oh, I, so, I've been for a while. I'm trying to work my way back east now. You know, because you know, they're definitely their heads are all up in you know film and television yeah. there. So, what kind of you know community is there's a there few really there's around? a few workshops. I mean, the, I was surprised. I've lived in L. A. for years and years and years, and I, I one night I was just online and I found the AMT in my backyard. It was an unknown commodity to me for years. I thought, well, how can I find others that want to write musical? Because I had written another musical. And uh, one night I found it and I begged him. I said, please, let me get over there and, 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 and join. But there's also another program. Uh, you know, there's a handful. You'd be surprised how many people are writing musicals. Where their, you know, visibility is where it gets, it gets tough in L.A. Because you have, you know, you need bigger houses. You need an audience. And a lot of the theaters in L.A. are pretty small. A lot of 99-seat houses. Another thing we discovered, which was interesting, is at a certain point in time, uh, an actor working in New York in the theater decides he's got to go make a living. <laughs> you know, and, and so they all go out to California to try and score it big and film. So there are a number of ex-Broadway people of a certain age who are sitting out there trying to get movie work, but, who's, but they, they miss having a chance to exercise their musical theater chops. So uh, we were very blessed in, in our cast to have a number of people who were former East Coast Broadway people, like Donna Miller, who was on Broadway with uh, Les Mis, and uh, have them involved in our show and this, this recording. The interesting thing is that uh, these people all know each other so well. Jody Langle, who stars in our production out here, and Donna are good friends. And in fact, 10 years ago, Donna replaced Jody in Les Mis. So it's a very, very small world we learn, we're learning. <laughs> all right, well, let's take a listen to the second song here from uh, your recording. Uh, do you want to set the song up? 
in uh, I Come for Love, Scoop, the reporter, has just scared away the entire town because he's made them think that an alien has escaped from what appears to be an empty crater and is somewhere out there among them. What he doesn't know is that everything he's making up is true, that a ship did crash land in that crater. It just happens to be invisible. And inside that ship is an alien. We haven't seen the alien yet. We don't know what it looks like. And shy young Floyd Dimwitty, the gas station attendant, is out collecting rock samples when he throws one and hits something. And the creature emerges from the ship. And then we learn who it really is, as the song will make clear. All right, let's take a listen. Wow, what a huge crater. That must have been some meteor. Hey, look at the space rock. It's glowing. Holy cow, what if it's radioactive? Yow! What did I hit? Something's in the crater. But it's invisible. Wait, what's that light? It's a door. Jumpin' Jupiter! It's an alien! It's coming right for me. It's... 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 Hugging... Are you here to colonize us? No. Are you going to destroy our armies? Of course not. Or steal our natural resources? Uh-uh. Then what did you come here for? To find something. Something wonderful. I am from a world in outer space Populated by a heartless race Where I felt completely out of place And so I flew away on my planet no one stops to feel i want grass and trees not glass and steel through my telescope i saw worlds of hope and so i had to go Up, do you want to let us know about some of the cast members and creative team that you got involved with this? We're blessed to have uh, Jody Langle, who people know locally probably from I Love You're Perfect Now Change, where she met our musical director Kim Steiner, 
and fell in love and got married. So we're happy to have this uh, loving, talented team on board with us. And Joe Barbara uh, from Greece, starred on, uh, on, on Greece on Broadway. Also, uh, he was on Another World for five years. Great guy. I mean, he we've we spent a long time trying was to find Was being on Another World for five years good practice for working on a so. show about aliens? It's definitely I, an omen. <laughs> and, uh, and he is so scoop. We've had a tough time trying to find the right scoop. He's... He's, got, he's a man's man. Yeah, he looks like Clark Gable. He talks like Humphrey Bogart. He's got this great, sexy swagger. Women are going to love him. Women, you want to see a great-looking leading man on a Broadway musical stage, come see our guy. You know. All right. So I Come for Love uh, starts September 30th and goes to the 5th. And people can find uh, all the various schedules and fun you know, festival times at the, the NIMF website, or I'm also assuming at your own website. Yeah, yeah. Uh, www.icomeforlove.com. All right. So uh, any other parting shots you'd like to get out before we wrap up? The last thing I would like to say is that um, although this musical is set in the 40s, it has a really contemporary resonance. And uh, we think it reaches across the years for that reason. There are jokes that are that only your grandparents will understand and, and funny little stuff that your 10-year-old kid will understand. So it's it's an all-ages show, but it speaks to the theme of love and understanding and acceptance, overcoming fear and prejudice. And people will find a lot of, of very similar uh, things in today's post-9-11 world to the paranoid world of the early 1950s and the Cold War. All right. Well, Jeffrey Lyle Siegel and Terrence Atkins, I thank you so much for stopping by the studio and chatting about I Come for Love. And I wish you the best of luck with your run. Thanks. Thank it was you, my pleasure. On the boards. Via Diodati is the village where Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein and the setting for a new musical at the Musical Theater Festival. We have composer librettist Mira J. Spector, who is here to talk about the show a little bit and share her demo of the production. How are you doing today? Okay. <laughs> so, first off, I guess just really kind of basically, can you tell us a little bit about what Via Diodati is about? I know it deals with kind of Mary Shelley and the ghosts and right. a couple visiting. But well, in a season where there's a musical about Frankenstein and a funny show about Frankenstein, our Frankenstein is really what he was in, in uh, real life, so to speak, a good piece of science fiction. And um, my chamber opera is about a place and time, really. It's about two summers in a villa overlooking a beautiful Swiss lake called the Villa Diodati, where Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, and it still stands as a landmark above the Luckley Moor in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, our prologue is actually set in 1998 with an American couple in a first-class train to Geneva, and then two couples, they're young and joyous and tragic and sexy, with a baby in tow, rent the villa during the summer of 1816. And they sing about love and death and premonitions and the creation of art. And the creation of art was one of the creations of art was Frankenstein. And to give you, may I give some background? Sure. In 1816, our so-called summer cast includes the poet Percy Shelley, his young wife-to-be Mary. They weren't married yet. Their friend, the poet Lord George Byron, and Claire, who was Byron's mistress, and Mary's half-sister. She was a little bit pregnant, too. 
Um, Shelley is totally focused on poetry, and his other passion is sailing. And he will drown in an Italian lake six years later. Byron, Lord Byron, was charismatic, but he had a club foot and also a director and a producer of theater, which some people didn't know about. And Claire is madly in love with Byron, and she will have a child by him. Mary Shelley, uh, while uh, infant mortality was high in those days, recently lost one infant that is now very busy with a new baby boy, Williams. And during the cold evenings, it was one of the coldest summers on record in Switzerland or in the world, but there was no television in 1816. So they told ghost stories, and that's when she was talked into creating a Dr. Frankenstein and his monster. And she's still haunted later in a dream by her own mother. And her mother was the famous Swiss uh, early feminist called Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin. And her mother died when Mary was 10 years old, 10 days old, rather. <laughs> and then in 1998, in our epilogue, the American couple comes back and looks at the villa. And the, I must say quickly, because you introduced me as the composer and librettist, the whole thing is based on a one-act uh, libretto by the poet Colette Inez, who is a, teaches poetry at Columbia University. And with her permission, I wrapped into this story about the American couple and made it into a full-length opera. And so beside Colette's lyrics, we also have poems by Byron and Shelley and Wordsworth. So what was it that attracted you to this material? Well, first of all, Colette gave it to me, and the more I got into it, the two of us by now have shelves of books. You get sort of pulled into this. It's a fascinating story. There's a movie about it called um, Haunted Summer. There's a British play called Bloody Poetry. Of course, there's the two Frankenstein shows going on now. Um, there's that movie that I adored, the, Franks, the Young Frankenstein, the original one, which is one of my mm -hmm. favorite movies. And then there's the Long Cheney movie, and uh, you know, there's tons of stuff. But the really interesting person is who created this monster? The monster was created by a young uh, 19th century housewife. You know, I think the very same thing when I get musicians coming in to record. I think, who created this monster? <laughs> that what? I think, who created this monster with my singers? Yeah, that Mary Shelley created it. <laughs> and it came out of, partly out of her own life. Her real mother died, and she was brought up by a very strict, peculiar father who had all sorts of free love ideas, but he was really quite awful, and he had a terrible second wife. And she hated her stepmother. So Mary Shelley, although she was very sweet and very polite and loving, felt like a motherless child. And she created a monster that was a motherless monster, a motherless creature, rather, to quote Calette. All right, well, I, I know we're going to play two songs here from uh, a recording you've done of this. Do you uh, want to set up this first song we're going to play? I believe it's called There Is No Heaven But My Love. Yes, that's a duet between Mary and Percy Shelley. And she, at every year, when she's 17 years old, goes on her mother's grave for the first time and uh, keeps on going. And he picks her up from the grave and makes love to her in the graveyard. And this is their duet. All right, there let's take a listen. There is no heaven but my love. There is no God but necessity. A heaven on earth will arise when we return to 
So who was singing on the recording that we just played? Oh, um, on the recording, um, the recording was made at the Rockland Opera, and um, I believe it's um, Kathleen Merrick and Ron Lloyd. So how long has this project been in the works with you? How, how long have you been working well, on Via Diodati? I, I want to say it a lot because it's fun to say. Originally, it was called Mary Shelley's Scenes from a Life. And it was born as a song cycle. And Alan Cosen gave it a very kind review, very good review, when it was just a song cycle. Um, and it was done, I think the first performance was at upstairs at the Renee Weiler Hall at Greenwich School of Music. And then it went on to, um, to Westchester, and it went to Palm Beach in Florida. It, and to Boca Raton in Florida. It went to East Hampton at Guildhall. And the last um, showing it had was in the reading series of the York Theater down in St. Peter's Church. 
just recently where two readings. Now, I'm guessing you've done a bit of other things, uh, a bit of the other composing. I'm curious if you could maybe oh, yeah, quickly, yeah. I've, quickly let us know a little bit of what you've done. Well, beside, um, oh, I've written uh, several things, including a feminist musical called The Housewives Cantata, uh, who had a first lady president in it. Um, and I wrote an opera called Lady of the Castle based on an Israeli play by Leah Goldberg about a, ch- a young woman hidden in a castle during the Holocaust. I've done lots of chamber music. I've written for films and, and TV. Uh, but what I'm very proud of is that since 1975, I run a concert series for women composers called the Aviva Players. And we do chamber music and songs. By And by the way, we are, I believe, the only classic, quote unquote, piece in the festival. <laughs> we're not a musical. We're a chamber opera. Thank you. Well, let's take a listen to the second song we're going to play from your uh, CD. This is, I believe, called I Feel the Room Grow Cold. Do you want to set this one up? Yes. uh, During the second part of it, uh, of the opera, it becomes a dream. They all go to bed, and Mary comes down and feeds her baby and starts having nightmares and dreams. And one of them is a premonition of a a beloved Shelley's drowning in a lake. And um, she's talking to, in her dream, to Claire, her half-sister, and suddenly says, I feel the room grow cold. And the other one says, let me light the fire. And she gradually comes into this image of uh, Shelley drowning in the lake. All right. So it's quite spooky. Okay. Take a listen. So Via Diodati is uh, starting on uh, September 22nd at the New York Musical Theatre Festival and runs through October 4th. Um, do you know what theater this is playing at? The 45th Street Theatre. All right. 
And any other parting shots you'd like to get out here about your show before we wrap up? Uh, what else would you like to know? <laughs> <laughs> um, I definitely, I, I thank you so much for stopping down and talking. Mira J. Spector. Thank you uh, for having me. I wish you the best of luck with Via Diodati and uh, the rest of your nymph run. And thanks for coming down. Thank you so much. Curtain Call. Well, that wraps up our extensive coverage of the New York Musical Theater Festival 2008, but the Musical Theater Festival has just gotten started. It runs through October 5th, so uh, if you're interested in any of the shows we've been covering, go to nymf.org to find out more and get your tickets. Uh, Next Monday, I am going to be backstage podcasting from the New York Innovative Theater Awards, and I will shortly thereafter, uh, hopefully uh, maybe on regularly on a Thursday, be posting all the backstage going on with the winners and presenters. So uh, be on the lookout for that. And then we'll be back on our regular schedule, second and fourth Thursday of the month, starting in October. Well, thank you for coming and hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we'll see you next time. about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.